in terms of the scientific revolution. But that revolution cannot become a reality unless we are prepared to make far-reaching changes in economic and social attitudes which permeate our whole system of society. That's the announcement for Mercury Control. This is Walter Cronkite back at the CBS News Control Center at Cape Canaveral. I want to put it to bed once and for all. That is a complete myth. So I collected the emails and set up a list called the Drudge Report. One reader turned into five, then turned into a hundred, and faster than you could say, I never had sex with that woman, it was a thousand. It's always been a, a ruffled trade, which has tended to attract uh, non-conformists and rebels. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news, and this is Bruce Belfridge reading it. and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, and everyone knows it especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have peace. We have to have peace. People keep telling us over the last 24 hours, like, in a horrible way, this is perfect timing. And I think that says a lot about the need for the idea for so long and, like, the need to focus on the capital in D.C. and the people in power in politics. Rachel Schindler is co-founder of the newest political outlet in the U.S., Punchbowl. The outlet is made up of former Politico staffers Anna Palmer, Jake Sherman and John Bresnahan. Idea was brewing for a while of like, what could it look like to, what would it look like if they did it their way? What would it look like if they did it under their own company and so forth? And then I'd say over the last four to six months, as they sort of hit negotiations or as they started talking about their contract with Politico and started moving away from it, the idea kind of came together in terms of like, what could this look like and what would it look like? So in terms of like my involvement, they brought me into conversations many months ago and started to say like, what would it look like to build? What do we need from a tech perspective, from a platform perspective, from an audience perspective? And we've all sort of been working behind the scenes for a little bit of time, trying to put this all together, make sure that something could launch on January 1st. So what attracted Rachel, who worked in Facebook's news partnerships team, to the project? It was like the unique business model that it was sort of going after. And the way that I, I, came, I came from Facebook, so I was staring at media publishers around the world for the last three years and learning about their business models and what was working, it was not. And so I think like that was one end of my, my intellectual spectrum. And the other end was like watching what Substack was doing. It was watching them go after these individual news creators and saying, hey, if you have a following, if you have an audience, you can monetize directly, people will pay for you. And that's a business within itself. And I sort of started questioning and wondering like, there has to be a middle ground. There has to be an in-between. You don't have to be a Washington Post newsroom or you know a Judd Legum on Substack. There, there, there has to be something else. Um, so I think like business-wise was very attracted to this idea of could you take talent in a specific vertical and with a specific audience um, and build a brand around it that's bigger than just the name, but smaller than a newsroom. So I'd say like business side, that was my attraction. And then I think like on a personal skills level, I've seen Jake Ann and Brez in action. They are 
three of the hardest working people I've ever met and I've ever seen. And I knew that if anyone could do something like this, it was the three of them and it was them on this beat. So it was kind of a perfect storm. Punchbowl received a relatively small amount of startup capital from Kindred Media, $1 million. It's also asking its subscribers for $300 per year in subscriptions. So we are not seeking any more investment now. It was a 1 million. It was very quick. It was fast. Um, it was definitely through like Jake and I have this brand. People were very attracted to them. Um, I believe this is in the New York Times, but Lion Tree led our investment round uh, or Lion Tree, sorry, the sole, sole main investor. We are not seeking more investment. And that I think just came together. They had this idea that they were able to pitch um, and people were pretty attracted to it. I will say um, people have even in the last 24 hours been asking like, are you taking investors? Are you taking investors? Can we invest? We're not taking any more investors at this time. At the time of recording, just a week after Punchbowl had launched, I asked Rachel how the subscription growth was going. We're very happy with what we are seeing. I can't overstate that. I think we've been talking, we talked a lot. We said, we're not going to put goals down on paper until the first few weeks after launch. We had numbers that we were throwing out there with our numbers that were like our tech spread is constantly talking about numbers and how our audience is growing, especially on the subscription side. Um, but obviously we care about both of those audiences. Purposely did not put, we did not say like, this is absolutely what we want to achieve by day, by week one, by Q1. And we planned on sort of launching, having goals in mind, and then getting together a few weeks post-launch and really putting those on paper. I'd say we've exceeded all expectations on growth, both on the free audience and the paid audience. And I think it's kind of, it's been an incredible response. But what exactly is the demographic that Punchbowl is going after? Actually on the paid side, we are going after sort of an audience that has not typically paid for a niche beat B2C. And so what I mean by that is like, you have your competitors in the space that go after, you know, lobbyists, the Hill, policy shops, think tanks, et cetera, and they sell B2B subscriptions. We intentionally, though, we're happy to, we're taking group memberships and we're taking group subscriptions and we've had a lot of inquiries on it. We really wanted this product to start as like a B2C product where I work on the Hill or I'm obsessed with the Hill or I need to understand what's happening from a power and politics perspective. And I'm willing to pay the $300 a year to do that. So why didn't Punchbowl follow many other publications and go down the Substack route? When it came to tech, um, our idea was like, let's build for flexibility. Let's not overcomplicate. We don't have a CTO. I'd say of the four of us, I'm probably, or definitely the most tech minded, but I'm not an engineer. I don't have like, a, I don't have a coding background. And so the idea was like, let's build something that works, that gets our news out there, that gets it quickly out there, that we're not limited by and allows us to build on top of over time, but let's not overcomplicate it. There was a brief moment where we looked at like out of the box solutions, whether that was a Wix, Squarespace, a Substack, like something that like you could be up and running within minutes. We felt like that was way too limiting in terms of building for flexibility. So we quickly moved away from those solutions. And in what our site basically is, it's a WordPress site. Right now we're using campaign monitors or ESP. We're using Memberful and Stripe as our membership and payment processing plan. Um, and then we have a few different plugins for events and, and so forth, but it's a very very simple tech stack to start. One big thing, one big thing, one big thing you need to know. This is just the beginning. Political newsletter business is becoming a crowded space. How is Punchbowl going to compete with Politico and Axios? I think I can't, I can't necessarily comment on 
you know, why would you, why would one move from Axios to Playbook or what, what is Axios and Playbook doing that's different than Punchbowl? I think what you'll, what I'd rather sort of share is like what we specifically are going to do differently at Punchbowl. And I think that what, what Jake and Anna have learned over the last four years of writing a daily newsletter is like voice and community matters above all else. And so I think when they, and you'll notice this, and a lot of our newsletters are right this, are like this right now, their top section is kind of what is getting like the most the most excitement right now and the most energy, which is like you have these voices on the ground that are trusted on the beat that they're reporting on and they are giving you their real impartial objective take of what is going on, but through their lens. And it's very, we're, we're hearing words like it's very accessible. It's very easy to read. It's very engaging. And I think the idea is like, we want it to have this. Someone said yesterday, like it's a small business feel, but like with a pretty big audience. And that's kind of exactly what we're going for. We want it to feel like someone in your community, someone that you know is, is giving you the news. And it's someone who is extremely knowledgeable on the subject and it is accessible and you understand it and you're part of it and you're learning it. And it's not this like, it's not a large corporation. And how will subscribers be rewarded for their sign-ups? You can even see it already through the site. And again, our site is basic, which was intentional from the start. There's a members page. We're featuring four members right now. We're going to add many more members to that. So there will be this like hopeful network that we start to build out, which is people know who some of our members are. People feel like they could access them in some way if they needed to or wanted to, of course, with member permission. We will be hosting many small like roundtable events, small convenings for members in our community. We're, we're playing around with these ideas of like how to feature members, how to make members feel like they are sort of sharing with the community and we're not just sharing with them. So I'd say we have a lot of ideas up our sleeve in terms of how do you make someone feel like they're part of something. And it's actually one of the things that I'm, I will be focusing a good amount of my time on. So we're very excited about what's to come. So where does Punchbowl take its inspiration from in the news media ecosystem? of inspiration like we've spent I, I i personally spent many months just like looking at what other companies do and what like as a news consumer you know i read seven newsletters a day at least like what is it that i like about certain newsletters what is it that i don't like about others what was signing up for them like what do i like about how they how i feel as a member of that community and so forth and i'd say morning brew is definitely one and jake has been pretty public about this we've spent some time talking to them they've definitely been really helpful in terms of giving us thoughts advice feedback and and so forth. I will say the logo, I feel like people don't really, you don't think that much about a logo. Logo took us a lot of time. Like we had this image, we knew what we wanted. Like, I think there was this very clear idea of like, let's turn the capital upside down and let's fill it with pink. But I'd say like, we went through many iterations until we got there and we're, we're really excited with where it is. And will Pinchbowl, much like Axios, stray beyond DC and politics? I would say for now, it is definitely going to be DC centric. It will be people, power, and politics within DC, within our capital, within the White House, within the administration. That's not to say forever, but I'd say we definitely have this like, we, we want to make sure that we nail this, that we do this right. We capture the audience. We are engaging. People read every day. We grow. Um, people want to interact with us in a lot of different ways. Our community grows, etc. And then I think we'd be willing to look at and understand like where are the next growth opportunities. But I'd say for the short term future, Everyone should expect this will be in DC or DC surrounding to start. Become so dishonest that if we don't talk about it, we are doing a tremendous disservice to the American people. Tremendous disservice. We have to talk about it to find out what's going on because the press honestly is out of control. The level of dishonesty is out of control. Is out of control. Is out of control. Is out of control.
fun stuff. We're doing. We just launched this thing called Wokey Leaks, which is kind of tips the service for people who inside whatever industry who've got like woke horror stories. Freddie Gray is editor of Spectator USA. Yeah, well, I I think Silicon Valley would be a big part of it. It's written by somebody who's anonymous. I think he should get quite a few good tips from like you know. Because there's quite a few people in comedy and in film and in stuff like that who are just fed up with just how insane it is. You know, like the sort of Ricky Gervais element. The Spectator has always billed itself as more of a cocktail party rather than a serious, hard-nosed political magazine. How's that fared in the US of A? The problem is now everything's getting so catastrophic that I suppose the worry will be snark is kind of... People are getting a little bit fed up with snark because it's all so apocalyptically bad. So we might have to kind of... I think if you can move to being sort of genuinely funny rather than just kind of snark, that's that's probably a good idea. But I do worry everyone's getting so depressed that soon no one's going to want to laugh about anything. So what did Gray, who edits the publication from London, make of the reaction to the US Capitol riots? I mean, I think the reaction is always worse than the than the action. So, I mean, I think it was obviously a bad thing, you know, all, all that stuff. But it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't an attempted coup. I don't care how many people try and say it is. It wasn't. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested to see what happens to Trumpism. I think you, there might be some Patriot Party might start forming. And I mean, th- those guys are going off the deep end. There's no, there's no denying that. There's a lot of the, you know, Q guys who, and then like fairly sane people are starting to get into Q stuff. And you just think, what's going on there yeah so i think i think that's that's going to be something to watch out for and then i mean i'm looking forward to in terms of editorially i'm looking forward to um getting stuck into the biden administration because i think there'll be a lot of fun to be had there you know the green new deal stuff like that anthony blinken defense contracts and stuff like that that will all be quite um quite a lot of potential there for scandal and and just really shit government pretending to be competent the Spectator USA has recently found itself on the wrong side of Trump supporters. But we've had a lot of um, cancellations. Uh, I think a lot of kind of when we when the Capitol, we did a few pieces saying, you know, this is Trump's fault on the Capitol stuff. And we had a lot of cancellation of people going, you know, I thought better expected better from you. I thought you support the president, all this stuff. And, and I think that is a. It is a potential problem for the spectator in America is sort of trying to make people understand that we do opposing points of view and that we're not just cheerleading. And that can be quite hard because some quite quite a few people, I think, sign up reading a Roger Kimball piece, say, and then they'll read a piece by someone else and they're horrified. But that I think that will hopefully get better as we get into the stride of the Biden administration. But um, last year was good. Our, our, um, our ambitious target was... 10,000 and we hit that um, in uh, late mid-November yeah mid-November so we are we're quite pleased with with the with the development and the growth and so on we got slightly worried about our ambitious target for 20,000 because I feel like we've picked the low-hanging subs fruit as it were um, and now we've got to, we're gonna have to sort of move on step up to another level to get to 20,000 Thursday after the capital Right, so we had like um, minus 20 or something. So it's kind of, that's a bit unnerving. But I still think subs is the way to go and I, th- I think we can do it. On the editorial side, meanwhile, Gray has identified a weak spot in his team. He's looking for more contributors to focus on Biden and the administration, particularly from the left. I hope we're going to roll out some new regular contributors and columnists who will be able to attract 
a kind of new audience. Uh, I think we need to find new pools of audience. Um, so we've got a weak spot in that we, we don't have great democratic contacts. We had pretty good contacts in Trump world, which won't be useless now, but are certainly not as valuable. So we do need to find contributors who are who are sort of connected in DC with, with the Democrats. Um, I don't think that needs to change our editorial kind of tone or anything like that, but I think it's I think it's important we do that. And you know, it's a bit of a bit of a weak spot at the moment, I'd say. I think it's been there's been quite a lot of sycophancy and a sort of lack of a conspicuous lack of curiosity in anything bad about Biden which is where I think our opportunity is, because I think you've got the kind of, you know, you've got a lot of media that are going to go full blown, uh, you know, he's a socialist, all that sort of stuff. I think there'll be a lot of that. But I think our opportunity is to do what a lot of the kind of, a lot of people on the left who really don't like Biden, who do much better criticisms of him, I think, than um, say Sean Hannity or someone. So I think that's our, that's our opportunity. And I think, yeah, sort of Green New Deal, as I said, I think Green New Deal corruption stuff will be interesting. I think just sort of swampy stuff, you know, all the stuff that got Trump elected is going to come back um, in a big way. After Trump's surprise election in 2016, the American media suddenly turned to the risk bout, the so-called flyover states. Does Gray see an opportunity there now that he's gone? Definitely. And I think the, I think our opportunity is to do it well, because a lot, of, a lot you know, whenever they, you know, the flyover country editorial is always a certain kind of I mean it's like a flyover editorial right it's kind of like we're doing poor people now you know or that sort of thing so it's I think the opportunity to to write about Heartland America well is is huge and I don't think anyone's really some people are doing American conservatives are doing it really well uh Washington and Sam have done it a bit I think but that the um yeah, I think but pieces on what life's actually like in America outside of New York, DC and LA is is a, is a big opportunity because it's such a big bloody country. Talking of urban America, what did Gray make of so-called big tech's moderation and banning of Trump himself, his supporters and other platforms, including Parler? I think it's really sinister. And what's really creepy is how publications are actually really scared of that because, you know, Facebook not just targeting us, but Facebook banned all political advertising around the campaigns and around the election, the 2020 election. And um, we were, so we, we've been blocked, even though we're not a political entity and we've applied for editorial status, but that just means sitting in a long, long queue. And, you know, I mean, it's quite possible, like some of our articles have been flagged on Facebook, just there was no need for them to be flagged. We had Lionel Shriver on YouTube. I don't know if you saw about that. She got because she said stuff about COVID that sort of YouTube thought breached its policies. I mean, you can't say anything. There's things about COVID you can't say. And I'm the, obviously I'm a free speech enthusiast, and I think that's it's really, really bad, really dangerous. I just hope I hope it's a tactical mistake for Silicon Valley, and I hope the people that do it, you know, crash and burn. But I worry that they won't. And finally, Gray reveals who he thinks is the best journalist in America. Fox News's Tucker Carlson. I just think he's so good at slicing through the the bullshit and he's not a kind of Trump sycophant in any way, but he's just very, very good at kind of, I don't know, getting stuck into big issues in a quick and immediate way. And I think his monologues, like 
if I was a publisher, I'd just publish a book of his monologues. I think they're really, really good. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue, rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal. We can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts, if we show a little tolerance and humility, and if we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes, as my mom would say, just for a moment, stand in their shoes, stand in their shoes, stand in their shoes.